Welcome to Financially Free Podcast with your host, Nay Torres. One of the reasons Nay could retire when he was 25 years old is because he was coached by the best. And now through this podcast, so can you. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the show. Thank you so much. We are today with Kevin Blecker again. He's going to talk to us about actionable stocks that we can see today for the listeners. I thought it would be a great idea to just take theory to a practical matter. And today, we're going to talk about your special or favorite stock of the day. How are you, Evan? Pretty good. How about yourself? Thank you. I'm doing great. Thank you for asking. I just woke up. It's 11 a.m. because I have jet lag and I'm in the Netherlands now. <laughs> Sorry for the delay. I'm here, so really <laughs> the- time. almost time for a warm glass of milk in bed. Really? Well, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So what's your favorite stock of the day? Well, I got one. That's a net net that I've had in my portfolio for, I would say, uh, a year and a half now. But I think that really it's important to set the stage before I give the stock pick. Just to uh, kind of, you know, five things to to keep in mind, just so your your uh, listeners have a good idea of what I'm doing and why I'm picking these sort of stocks. So the first thing I guess you should keep in mind is that I'm I'm pretty agnostic about how this stock will perform going forward. And that sounds kind of strange. Like, how can this be a stock that I really like, but I'm agnostic about how it's going to work out? Those things don't seem to go together. But it's really important how you understand the strategy. And that kind of explains my uh, agnosticism about this company. So what I'm trying to do when I'm picking these companies, I'm trying to pick companies that, first and foremost, they have uh, criteria that fit the overall strategy. So I'm picking net-net stocks, and you know they have to meet the criteria of being a net-net. They can't be a bankruptcy candidate, all the rest of it. So just basic criteria. And then on top of that, what I'm doing is I'm looking for factors that are generally associated with outperformance. So that's one thing to keep in mind. The second thing to keep in mind is diversity. So while the stock may fit the criteria and may have a number of factors in place that suggest better than average performance, we don't know how it's going to work out. So my aim is to fit, say, or what a net-net investor would do is try to fit maybe 20 of these stocks into a portfolio because ultimately some are going to produce good results, some are going to disappoint, some are going to lose money, some are going to skyrocket. And really what you're looking at is you're looking at putting together that basket and then focusing on the basket return. So an important thing to remember is that this is not what I would call a Warren Buffett one-shot, one-kill strategy where you know Warren Buffett, he likes to go out and he finds you know, a great company and he really believes that the company is going to have an exceptional future. That's not what we're doing. What we're doing is we're just looking for companies that fit the criteria and then on balance, statistically, they should produce good returns as a group. So that's the second one. I think the third one that investors really have to keep in mind is that just like you're going to have a range of outcomes with these companies in your portfolio, you're also going to have a range of returns from year to year. So that portfolio return is going to vary from year to year. You know, maybe next year is 5%, and then the year after that could be 40%. 
But in order to get the statistical returns that are associated with net nets, you really have to be in it for the long term. And I'm talking, you know, minimum five years, but ideally you'd be looking at closer to 10. So this is a long term strategy. It's not a trading strategy. It's not something that you just want to be in and out of and looking for quick money. So I, I'm very much against that. The fourth thing that that you should keep in mind, if you decide to buy these companies, you need to be using limit orders. One of the big problems with these tiny companies, net nets, they tend to be very tiny, very illiquid. They have a very large bid-ask spread. Bid-ask spread is um, basically the price that the buyer is trying to buy for and the seller is trying to sell for. So the seller is always trying to get more. The buyer is always trying to buy for less. There's a gap there, and that gap is the bid-ask spread. So if you don't use a limit order, you run the risk of buying for the seller's price. And that could be 25% above the, the quoted price on somewhere like Google Finance or Yahoo Finance. So limit orders are incredibly important. Do not forget that. The fifth thing that I want to mention is that I do own this stock. So this is a company that I've bought for my own portfolio, for family's portfolio and portfolios that I manage. So that's something that you should keep in mind when you're listening to this. So, Very good. You mentioned a couple of things there, and I yeah. think uh, I, I don't see them as a bad thing. It's actually super good if you want to... Um, I love inactivity. Does that make sense? Yeah. You do too. So yeah. not being in front of a computer 24-7, it's amazing, especially yeah. for the kind of returns that historically this net-net strategy has has done yeah. can you mention us how long has this strategy been around is it is it a robust strategy it's it's very robust it's been around it was popularized i would say by benjamin graham in the 1930s when he wrote a number of articles during the 1930s stock market crash one of them i believe the title is are american companies worth more dead than alive but it's unclear whether he was touching on a much older tradition of buying companies for less than their net working capital or net current asset value, or if he was looking at uh, a new strategy that he had just stumbled on. So that's unclear. But at any rate, uh, he popularized it in the 1930s, and it's been running now for you know 90 years. I think it's 90 years. Yeah. Perfect. So, so, so one of the things you also mentioned is that some of them are not going to work. What percentage of the time do, do they not work? I would say that you're going to run into disappointing results if you're doing a statistical mechanical strategy. So you're just going by the numbers. You're putting together a portfolio of 20 to 30 companies. You're going to find that you know roughly 40, 45% of them won't work or they'll disappoint. That doesn't necessarily mean large losses, but it could mean, you know, that they just stay flat or they're down 10%. A small number will be up, you know, maybe 10%. But what I've found in researching the strategy over since 2013 is that what you have in your portfolio is a number of companies that really, really excel. They really push up returns. So if the average portfolio return is say 25%, just for instance, you'll have most of the companies 
in your portfolio during an average year might return less than 25%, but you'll have a group of say 10% and they'll be up, you know, 100%, 200%, something like that. And so they're really pulling the performance of the portfolio up. So yeah, that, that's the type of distribution you're looking at. I should also say that, you know, while Graham developed the strategy in the 1930s, it has been, or developed, he, he popularized it in the 1930s. It has been tested by academics going back at least until, say, the 1930s, 1940s. I've only found one, one uh, study by academics that was not supportive of the approach. So I've specifically tried to seek out studies looking to disconfirm the strategy. And I've only found, you know, one that was not supportive. And that was way back in the 1930s. Everything up from the 1950s up until, I would say, the early 2010s, it's all been overwhelmingly supportive. And it's all shown like really, really high returns. Okay, well, what was the argument of that study, by the way? It was just, you know, they looked at the, the, the portfolio performance to net nets. And they found that it didn't really beat the market. So that was that was back in the 1930s. I'm sure that probably the the standards were a little bit different back then. It was different market conditions. So I can't really explain why they didn't beat the market. But every strategy, sorry, every study that I've looked at since then has been overwhelmingly supportive. One of the things I can add there is that when you backtest a net-net portfolio, yeah. it can be, and, and pe- two different people looking at the same market are going to have different results because when you backtest a portfolio like this, there's a lot of theory too. Yeah. You, can, you, you can buy a stock that's not really liquid in, in your backtest and sell it just at the right moment when, it, as you mentioned, limit orders not, not always are fulfilled. Yeah. And so very different um, results. We just have to mention that. Also, how will you start a, a portfolio from zero? Will you start adding? I've heard people that say, I will start adding a stock every week, every month, or do you just buy a portfolio right away? So if I was starting again today, what I would be doing is I would be looking at two buys a month and I would run that strategy for a full year. And then in month 13, I'd be looking at uh, reassessing my picks. And if there's still a buy, then I would leave it in my portfolio. But you know, if the value eroded or the stock went way up, then I would be looking to sell it. So that's, I think, how I would start today. Now, obviously, your reader or your readers, your, <laughs> your listeners are, you know, they range in sophistication when it comes to investing. And people who are more sophisticated investors, I would say, okay, well, what you really want to do is study the strategy first and foremost, and then study what factors can can help returns and which ones are responsible for decreasing returns. And then you can use your best judgment when it comes to catalysts and that sort of thing. So you can be a little bit more concentrated in that case. Perfect. So let's jump into the stock. What stock are we talking about today? So today we're looking at TLV Holdings. It's on the Singapore Stock Exchange, and the ticker is 42L. L is in love. Love the net nets. <laughs> uh-huh. And what do they do? They name it in Singapore like a number. 
That's a really good question. I know that the tickers there have a mixture of letters and numbers. I'm not an expert on you know how they craft their tickers, but uh, it's a little bit different than what you're going to find in U.S., Canada, that sort of thing. Perfect. I can tell. Yes, very good. So the stock is trading right now at right now at seven. Two days ago, it was at six. Yeah. What's going on with this one? Seven cents, by the way. Yeah, seven cents, not seven dollars. And uh, you know, right away, your your listeners are going to get their back up. They're going to be like, "Whoa, wait a minute! This guy is peddling penny stocks. That's what this is all about." And technically, it does qualify as a penny stock. It's it's below a buck. So that is, you know, penny stock territory in my books anyways. And generally the problem with penny stocks are that they're nearly bankrupt companies, they're fly-by-night companies, so they're likely to just evaporate into thin air. They're subjects of pump-and-dump scams. There's a lot of crooks running them. And those are all good reasons to stay away from penny stocks. But the flip side of that is that if everybody believes something, usually if you dig deeper and you look at the actual facts, you can find pockets of opportunity. And so right now, penny stocks are generally avoided by, I would say, most quote unquote respectable investors. And so if everybody's avoiding the situation, then, you know, that's, that's where the opportunity arises from. So if we're looking at TLV holdings specifically, what factors are in place that suggest that this is not, you know, your typical problematic penny stock? First of all, the company was founded in 1997. There's a 23 year history of operations. So it's not a new, you know, technology company that's created a robot butcher or something if you watch Seinfeld, right? No, it's it's been around. It's a, respect, a respectable company. They are actually a retail outfit and they, they're in the jewelry space. So if you look at uh, the operating performance of the company, they're profitable and they have significant net assets. And so the net assets actually dwarf the market cap. So there's real significant value behind the behind the price of the company. Now, you know, retail is I would call it a more stable kind of business. Uh, you know, some retail is more stable than the other, but you know, broadly speaking, retail can be pretty stable. So we're not looking at a company that's just going to disappear overnight. You look at the board of directors. You know, most of the companies that people are afraid of when they're talking about penny stocks is you know, management's conning people, directors are stealing money or whatever. But with TLV Holdings, one director was awarded the public uh, service star and appointed a justice of the peace in 2015 by the president of Singapore. One director is a charter chartered accountant, and that's that's a designated designation with very high ethical standards. And I found another director who was a Supreme Court lawyer. So these are these are not crooks, unless you think lawyers are crooks, and some people do. But these are some of Singapore's best people, you know, most respected people. These are people that you'd want, you know, to introduce to your family. You'd be fine if your daughter your daughter married one. So this, <laughs> but <laughs> sorry, I had to laugh. That's a very good metric. Uh, for, for, yeah, and, and Singapore is well known for being super, you know, right and, and, and very correct and stuff yeah. like that. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's amazing. Okay. So if you look at the company as well, what you see is a, a long, I wouldn't call it stable, but it's definitely a, not a highly erratic stock price. So it doesn't seem something that's typically subject to, to pump and dump scams where, you know, somebody's touting the stock and hoping it goes up and so they can unload it. It's a very stable company. So for all those reasons, I wouldn't put it into a sketchy penny, penny stock category. I would say this is at least something that we have to look deeper at. So, you know, diving into it, we look at the valuation. Again, I said that it has net assets that dwarf the market cap. Market cap right now is 36 million. That's not billion, that's million. So it's an absolutely tiny company. And generally, the smaller the companies that you're looking at, the less efficient the stock market's going to be. So all the big pros, the people that know better, the skilled investors are typically not looking at these tiny companies. And so if you study up and you get a good amount of skill or a decent amount of skill or follow a good strategy, there's some, there's some significant opportunities there, at least more than the mega cap stocks. So you look at the net current asset value. Net current asset value comes in at 78 million. So that means that the company is trading at a discount of 54%. So it's a very large discount. Now, I should specify net current asset value. What is net current asset value? The easiest way to conceptualize net current asset value is you take your book value and then you strip out all long-term assets. That's net current asset value. So it's book value less long-term assets. So basically what you're saying is if this company dies today yeah. and everybody gets paid their money, you're going to double your investment. That's if they exactly. die. Yeah. Good. So if, if the company closes its doors, sells off or liquidates you know, all its assets and then pays out the money to shareholders, you're going to get 100% more than you paid for the stock. So it's trading below liquidation value. Graham thought that net current asset value was a good proxy for liquidation value generally. So whenever we're talking about net net stocks, we're talking about stocks that are trading below a very conservative assessment of liquidation value. So I want to I wanna pinpoint to that. That's a very conservative. Yeah. Why is this conservative? Well, because when you're looking at liquidation value, uh, well, we'll we'll take book value for example. We're looking at book value. That book value can be wide from the mark when it comes to an actual liquidation value, and the reason is that long-term assets tends to fluctuate to a very significant significant degree from their stated book values. So you can have, say, a piece of property on on the balance sheet, and in many accounting systems. The company is supposed to mark down the value of that pro property in depreciation. But what everybody knows, I mean, your, your listeners are a bunch of property investors, right? So they automatically know that the value of property rises over time, generally speaking. That's where we're looking at 2009. So it, while the, while the company is marking down this property, the value is rising. So in this specific case, the value as stated on the balance sheet can be much different than the real world value. Now, what we tend to find is if you exclude the long-term assets and you're just looking at net current asset value, 
then when it comes to the liquidation scenario, some of the current assets will see some shrinkage in value during the liquidation process. But on the flip side, those long-term assets step in on average to fill in the gap. And so your net current asset value becomes a much more accurate assessment, rough assessment. It's an accurate rough assessment of liquidation value. Now, if you want to get really technical, you can get much more accurate by actually being an insider in the industry and and evaluating the actual real-world liquidation value of these assets. But as an outside investor, you don't you don't necessarily have that knowledge. So you have to use rough rules of thumb. And Graham found this one very practical. So one of the problems you may find when liquidating a company is that you have inventory yeah. and the inventory didn't sell as well as you thought it was going to sell, right? Yeah. So this net current asset value has some adjustments or not? Well, it really depends on what you do. You're definitely correct that some inventory will see significant shrinkage. So if you're in the business of selling Alanis Morissette cassette tapes, then probably you're not going to get uh, you know full resale value for those. You're, you're probably going to be liquidating at quite a steep loss. But if your inventory is gold bars, that's quite different, right? There's you know, a real world market for that type of stuff. It's highly liquid. You're going to be able to pinpoint the value of that with extreme accuracy. So the situation kind of informs the approach you should look at taking when calculating liquidation value. Also, the strategy informs it. So if you're just a mechanical stock investor and you're you're saying, you know, I just want to invest in net nets, just give me a basket of 30 and I'll let the probabilities take care of itself. That's fine. Just calculate net current asset value and, you know, go from there. If you're running a more concentrated portfolio of, say, 10 stocks, and you're basing your decisions on liquidation value, you really got to start digging into the numbers here. You got to see what the company has, and you have to see what discounts you you should uh, give the company. There is an approach called net net working capital, which is kind of a cousin of uh, net current asset value. This approach discounts the various current asset accounts by specified amounts. Usually there's a range. Most investors today use a, a certain number. So for example, receivables will see receive a 25% discounts, inventory a 50% discount. But again, you know, this is a very rough figure that you're applying to the to the current accounts and and you really have to be an expert to say you know, how much you should discount those accounts. In my own investing, what I tend to do is I tend to look at just net current asset value. So I don't really do much in the way of discounting. I'm trying to pick companies that have really strong catalysts that, behind them. So on average, I'm hoping to be roughly right on the liquidation value, but I'm hoping to be more right about my picks and to make sure that my company's have a bright future and are actually going to do better going forward. Yeah, basically all of, all that we're saying is that you're going to be fine if you have a, a basket of this, right? Yeah. And especially right. in this situation, the reason we are seeing this and why the big fish are not just scooping this out of our hands is because 
Evan has done their homework and has seen, hey, wait, this is not as bad as it looks. Computers are never going to catch this. Yeah. Uh, exactly. Perfect. So you were talking about net current asset value. What yeah. else? Okay. So that is it for the valuation. So mm -hmm. I'm not going to touch anything else. The thesis is very simple. So you have a company that's trading below liquidation value, below net current asset value. It's a very conservative number. The discount is large. It's 54%. So that's the type of discount I like to look at. Next, I like to look at the balance sheet. And I like to see if there's any problems there. So sometimes you're going to find that a company has very small current ratio or has way too much debt. And that, that can really put the investment thesis into question. Even though a net net by definition will have more current asset value than all liabilities put together, total liabilities, you can still run into a situation where debt can sink the company. So I've, I've seen this in at least one situation. So I, I like to stay away from it because I don't like to lose money on my stock. So <laughs> surprise, surprise. So we're looking at TLV Holdings balance sheet. And right now I see a current ratio of roughly 2.4% or sorry, 2.4 times. And the current ratio is, sorry, go ahead. No, yeah, I was going to ask you what is net uh, current ratio. Yeah, sure. So the company uses its current assets basically to fund its current liabilities. So the current assets are assets that it wants to turn into cash within a year. Current liabilities are liabilities that the company has to cover within the course of the year. Generally speaking, the company uses it uses its uh, current, sorry, its current liabilities and, and other liabilities to fund the current assets. But a quick and dirty way of seeing whether the company will have enough cash to survive over the next twelve months is to look at the current ratio, and that's the ratio of current assets divided by current liabilities. And so in this case, the company has about 2.4 times the current assets that they do have the current liabilities. So in other words, it does not look like they're going to run into a liquidity problem. So it looks like they're going to have enough cash to survive for the next year, no problems. Another uh, variant to that is the quick ratio. And this is essentially the current ratio, but you're excluding your inventories. Inventories are harder to move, you know, and who knows how the company is valuing their Alanis Morissette tapes. So we exclude the inventories just to get, they call it the acid test or the quick ratio. This is a more strict measure of the company's ability to raise cash to fund those current liabilities. And in this case, the company has a quick ratio of just over one, which I consider decent. So I don't think that this company is going to have any problems with liquidity. Now, debt is a little bit higher than I would like. Debt is at 35% of equity. So when I'm talking about debt, I'm talking about um, interest, rate, interest rate bearing debt. So this is bank loans, bonds, bridge loans, you know, stuff like that. And in this case, those loans make up a value that equals 35% of the company's equity value. Or its which, value. Is, which is still very good. I mean, maybe yeah. not for your standards, but in real estate, we use sometimes 100% of that. Yeah. <laughs> of, course, of course, different business, 
Yeah. But um, still, I want to mention that's very conservative. Like one third of your equity is tied up. Yeah. That's it. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I definitely agree with that. I I fall into the Walter Schloss camp, though, where you know Walter Schloss was um, was a worker for Graham. He basically did stock analysis for Benjamin Graham when Benjamin Graham was running his partnership, and he worked alongside Warren Buffett actually. But he hates debt, and he wants to find companies that have zero debt. I lean more in that direction, but I'm not as strict. So when I see 35% debt to, to equity, most people think that's fine. For me, I start to feel a little bit queasy. I like to see you know debt to equity ratios below 20, 25%. Ultimately, the lower, the better. And Tweety Brown actually did a study and they found that Nanettes tend to work out better when they have less debt. So, yeah. Makes another, sense. Yeah, I mean, another thing you should keep in mind is that you know, finance uh, schools will say that there's an equal or there's a certain amount of debt that you should have for your company because it makes your companies um, more efficient. Yeah, it's more efficient. Yeah, it's, it's, especially in this environment is a low interest rate. So it does make sense to get some debt. Yeah. yeah, I guess that what matters is the tendency of the debt, right? Well, I would say that it's not even that. What it comes down to is you have these net nets. They're selling below net current asset value. That means that they're selling below a conservative estimate of liquidation value. You're only going to find bargains like that if there's serious business problems. So if your company lost you know, 50% of its revenue or 75% of its revenue, it's bleeding a lot of red. You know, it's, it's losing a lot of money every single year. And you, there's been a 90% stock market or a stock price drop. How much debt do you want your company to have, right? The answer is clearly zero. You don't want it to have any debt because debt means that management has to come up with cash in order to satisfy debt holders who can put the company into bankruptcy. That's not exactly what you want. It also, you know, it, it kind of, in a way, handcuffs management's ability to deal with the situation. Because they have to use cash for debt. They can't take on as much debt to fund short-term problems. It also disrupts, you know, these are obvious takeover acquisition candidates. But if you can't fund the acquisition with debt, well, it's less attractive. So, you know, for all those reasons, you really don't want to have a lot of debt there. It's 35%, you know, I'll give it a pass. I'm hoping it doesn't increase that much from here. I'll be watching it, but uh, it's something to keep an eye on. Got it. Uh, so uh, just as a, as a reference, I guess if you were in real estate, you would look this as a house that went turning to bad neighborhood. Most people wouldn't touch it with a stick. But if it's selling at 50 cents on the dollar, some people like you and I are willing to take a look to it. Definitely. I mean, if you look at that bad neighborhood and you assume, say, the houses on average go for 100,000 US in that neighborhood. And then for some reason, I don't know, maybe it needs a new roof, something. This, this one house is selling for 50,000. Well, you're going to take a look at that. It doesn't matter what the neighborhood is, right? Because you can, I don't know, you can buy it. If you assess the problem and the problem's, you know, fairly minor and your cousin who's a carpenter can fix it for, you know, five grand. You can flip the house, right? And that's basically what we're doing. That's what we're doing with NetNets. Perfect. I like that, that 
comparison. Very good. And and we stated at the beginning this company is worth twice as much debt as it is today. So in worst case scenario, we double our money today, right? Yeah, exactly. So I guess I should get to the stock information. We mentioned that this this falls into other facts. So we've covered now the main facts. We know that it's uh, that it's selling at a large discount to Nectar and asset value. We know that the balance sheet is solid, apart from the debt, which we're going to have to keep our eye on. But now going to additional factors that could influence the attractiveness of the investment. So looking at the stock information, stock price is six and a half cents Singapore dollars. So very very small. Now, nay, uh, you might know the answer, but for somebody listening to this, what do you think they would think about that stock price? Is it a plus or is it a negative when it comes to the investment? I think that will be a negative. Negative. Okay. Yeah. That's actually a huge plus. And the reason why is that a small stock price can increase or decrease by a larger percentage, much easier than a large uh, stock price can. So this company just based on the stock price. And this is this is my theory. I've heard this from Peter Lynch, who is a master investor, way, way better than I am. He said that small stock prices, small market caps, generally can increase in price much more rapidly and to a much greater degree than a large stock price or a large market cap. So it's actually a big plus. Looking at the stock volume now, this is getting a little bit dicey. So on average, over the last three months, on an average day, there would only be $1,600 worth of stock traded. So $1,600. So, nay, same question, plus or minus? Uh, for me, that's, uh, well, for listeners, that will be a minus because if somebody just walks in and starts buying the stuff without a limit order, that thing's going to jump to the roof. But unless you already have a position, which you do. <laughs> yeah. That's true. That's true. It can be it can be a plus or a minus. It depends on the size of your portfolio. I know, Nay, with your you know hundreds of millions of dollars, you're not going to be able to buy this. Sorry, Nay, but uh, you know, I wish. Yeah. <laughs> if you're make an offer to to the board of directors, there we go. <laughs> if you're a small investor and say you want to put um, you know fifteen thirty thousand dollars into it or something, you can build up a position over time using limit orders and just being patient and you know eventually when somebody who doesn't know necessarily as much as you tries to buy a position and they don't use the limit order like nay was saying then you know the stock can really shoot up there's another situation that is very similar when something positive happens to the company like say for example a new line a new product line works out for the company and they start increasing in revenue rapidly the company turns profitable and it's, you know, profits are really increasing. Suddenly more people want to own it. But if there's only $1,600 worth of stock being bought, you start to have to bid up the price of the company just to get, you know, a block of stock. So what you're going to find is that good events trigger explosive upside with illiquid companies. So again, it's an, if you can buy shares, it's another significant positive. Shares outstanding are about 560 million, and insiders own about 60% of the company, which is very large. Yeah. 
So the float is about 230 million. So public investors, anybody who wants to buy shares that's not an insider, you have 230 million shares to buy. That is, that is actually super good. 60% of the company is owned by these people that you mentioned right now. Yeah. And uh, that means they're going to treat it like their baby. Oh, yeah, for sure. Especially if they know that they can't sell it. Because look at the volume. You know, the only way for them to safeguard their money and, you know, really, really grow that cash or that, that value over time is to do what's best for creating shareholder value. And so, you know, that's huge. That's, that's really big. Now, turning to the income statement, and you'll notice that this isn't part of the core criteria that I used, well, or the main criteria that I used. This is additional bonus criteria because what we find with NetNets is that a company that's losing money on, on average, you know, if you put together a basket of those, those can work out really well. The portfolio can work out really well. Stocks that are profitable, or sorry, companies that are profitable, if you put together a basket of those stocks, those net net stocks, those can work out well, but they don't quite work out as well as the money losing stocks. So this is not, you know, what I would consider a major criteria for selection, but it is something to take note of. The company has $112 million in revenue. So, you know, we're looking at 36 million for market cap, 112 million for revenue. So the price to sales ratio is about 30%. So in other words, if you're spending a dollar, you're getting $3 in sales back. Why is that valuable? Well, if you're an acquirer, if you're somebody who's managing the business and you can buy it for 36 million, and then you can put the, you can make, you can uh, increase the operational efficiency of the company you're going to get, you know, a significant boost in profit. So uh, cut costs, basically. Exactly. So your profit can rise quite substantially. If we're looking now at the company's net profit, it is pretty small, even for a retail company. Retail companies, last I looked, and, you know, I'm not an expert on retail, but last I looked, they tended to have a net profit margin around 5%. Maybe around eight percent, somewhere in there. Good company will be, ha- you know, will have obviously a, a little bit um, larger net profit margin. But in this case, the company is only making three point four million dollars in net profit. So it's making. I haven't run the numbers. Nay, I know that you're a mathematical savant. So what is that? Uh, <laughs> what is that for a percentage? Three point four divided by one twelve. Well, that's pretty easy because I have a button here that just turns into a percent that just one wait, um, 3.03% net margin. Okay. So yeah, so about 3%, I would guess. Net um, margin, yeah. But that's 2.7% of the sales. It was in 2015 at 6.49%. So. Yeah. So, so yeah, and that's and that's the reason we're seeing this, right? Is because they're going through a not so good patch. If not, this this will completely will completely have a different price. I mean, that's that's exactly it. I mean, you look at the company and they were doing fine, you know, 2015, 2016, and then the Singapore consumer confidence hit an air pocket, and so the numbers uh, dove. The consumers in Singapore were not 
as loose with their purse strings. I'll put it that way. And so the company's sales dropped. And I'm, I'm just looking at some numbers here. And in 2016, it had sales of 127 million. Now this dropped, I don't know what percentage it is, maybe 15% to 112 now. Uh, so 112 million now. So, you know, a significant amount of sales decrease. Also in 2016, so this is one year after your 6.4 million, you said, or? Yeah, that was a drop of 22%. Okay. Okay. So 2016, the company was making 5.5 million. That's decreased to 3.4. It's quite a big drop on percentage terms. So yeah, obviously investors are not that happy. So they've sold off the stock. And that's our opportunity. You know, you obviously, you have to buy when the blood's running on the street. That's what they say. In this case, you're looking at a very stable company that is trading at less than half of liquidation value, still profitable. It's going through a rough patch. You know, the upside possibility is around 100% if it trades back, back up to net current asset value. If we're looking at the 2016 numbers, so 5.5 million, and we slap a PE multiple of 15 times on there. So this is, you know, companies trade based on a multiple of their net earnings, 15 or 16 being the historic average over the last 100 years. So if we apply 15 times PE multiple, we're looking at about $83 million for the value of the company in that situation. So my thesis here is that eventually, I don't know when, but eventually consumer confidence is going to get back on track in Singapore and the company is going to be selling more product and the and uh, net profit's going to rise and people are going to pile back in the stock. When that happens, you know, hopefully it can trade up to 83 million or or whatever based on, you know, a much larger net net profit. Yeah, so that's that's basically what it comes down to. I will say also that there is some catalyst, or there was a weak catalyst in the past, and the catalyst really comes down to coming out with some joint ventures in China. So this is before the Chinese economy kind of took a bit of a hit, and TLV joined a, uh, they had a joint venture with a Chinese company, and they were building out, helping to build out stores in China. And then they would sell their jewelry through those stores. So, you know, obviously, if you can increase your sales channels, then you can increase the number of products you you can sell and the revenue you can sell. And so that just helps cover your fixed cost and increases your net profit. So, you know, since since I came out with that thesis, almost immediately the Chinese economy started started slipping. You know, which is which tends to be a trend. Uh, with my decisions, but uh, it's still, <laughs> you know, everybody says that I, I, there was a time I remember doing trading, uh, a school trading school, like 15 years ago. And the guy stood up and said, I'm sure somebody's watching me on this camera on the computer. Cause every time I put an order, it starts just falling. <laughs> yep. Yep. Yeah. Story of my life. You know, <laughs> I would say that Almost every single stock that I bought has dropped after I bought it. And, you know, that's, that's whether they've worked out or not. You know, most of them have worked out. But yeah, it's just, it's the curse of being a value investor. You're often early.
But so. you have, yeah, you, yeah, you have a logic behind all, all these decisions that is very solid. That does make sense. I want to just mention that to the listeners. It's part of being financially free. Really, is you start with the business, you put that money into real estate. Even you know, you can even skip the business part because if you're good at raising money, you can find deals and raise the money for the business real estate, and you treat it like a business. But what do you do with those rent dollars? You put it to this kind of strategy. Yeah. To compound it, to make it bigger. Yeah. And, and you know, sometimes I have arguments with people I really care about because they're like, I want to buy X company, say Tesla, which is right now at $700, $900 in like a week or something. It used to be at 100 like six months ago. And, and I'm like, yeah, but how much is it worth? And nobody can answer that question. Just They look at me and they're like, what they don't realize they're buying a piece of a business when you yeah. buy stuff. Exactly. And, 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 you know, I can underperform with this strategy, but you know what? We'll be fine. We'll survive 50 years. The guy that's jumping into Tesla right now, I don't know how, how he can justify those prices. He can't. Nobody can. This is really, you know, if you, if you think about it, this is the exact opposite investment of Tesla or of, you know, Facebook, right? We're buying, or I bought a old world jewelry business with physical stores that's going through a significant rough patch and it's trading well below liquidation value. So if you look at, say, a Tesla, you know, that has, I don't know what their earnings are, but it, it doesn't justify the stock price currently. It's trading on hope and prayers. It's in a high tech, fast growth industry, just like, you know, just like dot com in the late 90s. It's, it's quite a bit different. Now, why I would want to own this instead of Tesla, you know, and, and this is really the people who can relate to this are really my kind of people because you either get value investing or you don't. And if you don't get it, you, you just don't get it. But if you do get it, then it all makes sense to you. The reason I would go with this is because the company's stable. They're selling for less than, you know, a conservative assessment of liquidation value. And so my, my investment is safe long-term and it has a good chance of working out. Now by safe, I mean, you know, after you put a number of these into a portfolio. So any one of these, you know, could slip and, uh, and produce loss. But, you know, on average, at least your principal is, is pretty safe. Yep. And I want to leave listeners with that. Thank you very much, Evan, for your time. Where can people find more about you and how's your book doing? <laughs> book is good, actually. Um, I've... I've submitted it and the editors are now hard at work at it. And uh, I tell you, that is a big weight off my shoulders. Uh, it was a huge, huge task or a huge amount of work to, to produce that. Uh, now, if you want to learn more about NetNet stocks, go to netnethunter.com. We have a lot of free resources. You could just read a lot of articles. I think I have 150 or 200 articles up there. If you are really keen about learning more about Nanets, then you can sign up for a free newsletter. And I think that's probably the best way to go. Well, thank you very much for your time. See you next time. Did you learn something today? How can you apply your insights? What's next for you? The fastest way to make things happen is to just share this podcast episode with more people that may find it valuable too. Talk about it with them and surround yourself with like-minded people. Hope you found this valuable. Don't forget to subscribe. See you next time.